you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. You are amazing, a God who's unchanging, you're always unfailing, the beginning and the end, you are amazing. You were God before there was time, and you were God right here in our lives, and you will always be our God. Oh, the mountain trembles and the sea stands still, and the mention of your All glory and honor and praise be unto your name. Your love, it never fails. Your grace, 
coffee this morning instead. Man, we have a lot of people in the hospital right now, so we want to ask you, if you look, open your worship, guys. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. Let me start there. Glad to have you here. I know there's a lot of people watching on the internet, and we're glad to have you logging in with us this morning. And our hope and our prayer, having been with us today, is that you are encouraged in your relationship with God. Uh, And if we can minister to you or encourage you in any way, let us know. If you're visiting here in the house, Uh, and uh, you've been visiting for a while, I would love to meet you after the service, and uh, I'll be up here up front, and Julie will be, and we'd love to shake your hand and uh, take you to a Bible study class if you're interested or answering questions, but we're awfully glad to have you here this morning. Uh, In your worship guide every week, and and sometimes when something's in here every week, you kind of take it for granted, but we have our prayer guide, and uh, there just seems to be a lot of people sick and in the hospital and dealing with cancer and stuff. I want to encourage you to keep Make sure you keep praying for each other. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on and, and uh, people healing and, and people you know, folks that you know. So make sure you take that and put it on the fridge or put it on the kitchen table so you're reminded to pray or put it in your car so when you're driving to work, 
you can lift people up and encourage them. But boy, I want to encourage you to make sure you use that family. We need to we need to keep in, uh, encouraging each other in that way and, and lifting each other up to the Lord. Uh, in the worship guide, there's some things I want to highlight for you as we move towards the holiday season. A women's Bible study just started on the book of Job. It's not too late to jump in. There are multiple times available for you. Um, uh, and if you have any questions, you can talk to Julie. She'll be up front after the service as well. You can ask her questions or times. I want to remind the men that every Tuesday morning at 6.30, from 6.30 to about 7.10, we meet right out here. We have coffee and we study the Bible together. Daryl Douglas leads us in that and does a fantastic job. And this is a wonderful opportunity for you to get to know other guys and encourage each other in your relationship with the Lord. Uh, ladies, there's a Christmas event coming up you want to save the date on and... Uh, um, I think that pretty much does it. You can read the rest of the worship guide and see stuff going on. If you have questions, you can email us or call us. We're, we're glad to answer them. Uh, we, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare to take our offering. And uh, again, this is for those who attend regularly. If, uh, if this isn't your home, we don't want you distracted by our offering. We just want you to uh, walk with God and know the Lord personally. Uh, the rest of us, this is uh, our responsibility. We support missions and uh, our ministries here. So be involved. Let's pray together and commit our service to the Lord. Father, I thank you that we can gather together this morning in this uh, comfortable place, uh, some on the internet, uh, most of us in this house, and we can, we can learn about you, we can sing songs of praise to you, and uh, encourage and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And Lord, this morning my mind is on those who are ill, and, and uh, whether it's with the flu at home or in the hospital, uh, we think of the Willises right now as, as uh, Tom keeps having post-surgery uh, infections and different things. We pray you'd heal his body. And we think of Dolores as she's recovering from her chemotherapy. And, and uh, Lord, family members, who, family, our, our church members who've lost family members the last few weeks that are just struggling with the emotions of that and an empty seat at the table. And Lord, there's so many things that uh, when I start mentioning them, I, I know I'll forget people, so I'm just going to pray for all of them. And Lord, our family members that may be uh, out of town this weekend, would you please lift them up and encourage them and give them a great time of refreshment and give us a time of refreshment, Lord. I pray that uh, we would hear from you and, and, and experience your presence in a unique way today and be encouraged. And if there's somebody watching today or somebody who's in this room who doesn't know you, may today be the day of their adoption. We do love you, Lord. We're thankful we can gather. Now we turn our eyes completely on you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. If you want to stand and worship with us, you're more than welcome. Once a sinner, now I'm clean. Once condemned, now I'm made free. He turned my darkness into light. Once in ashes there's beauty, 
God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day 
for all to see.
We stand before you as a declaring, Lord, that you are holy. There is none beside me. God, we also stand here on your word that says if we are holy, that we are righteous because of what has been done. And God, though that's hard for us to understand, Lord, we choose to stand on that because you are holy, God. 
because you took our place, Lord, that we can stand here and declare that. So, God, we ask, Lord, that you would just, God, you would open our hearts, open our minds to that truth, Lord, that we're not just passengers, we're not just people trying to make it through, Lord, that you have looked at us and you have called us holy and righteous, and though it makes absolutely no sense, Lord, because you are holy, we are holy, God. And so we, we ask that you would just speak to us this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. cool things about using technology is you never know what it's going to do when you open it. And there was a picture of me. My camera came on. I almost took a picture and sent it out over Facebook this morning. <laughs> so in last week's text, Matthew 14, we read that when Herod's, Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother, Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's against the law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed that John was a prophet. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias, his sister, now wife, her daughter, now his daughter, keep in mind those things, performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. At her mother, okay, this girl, his daughter's mother, Herod's sister, now wife, just, just to be clear, that's a messed up government, just in case you're not clear on that. At her urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted that he had said to her, but because of the vow he had made in front of his guests, he issued the, the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. That's collusion. I thought I would throw that in there. Seriously, are you guys sleeping this morning? That's like politics. I just thought I'd throw that in there. J later, th this is such a messed up story, and, and, and it's important that we, we get our brains around that because it is easy when you watch CNN or Fox News to think that the world is in the worst time it's ever been in history. Just so you know, it's been way worse, and it'll get there again, but it is. this is messed up. Later, John's disciples came for his body, and they buried it. Then they went and they told Jesus what had happened. And as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be left alone. I have uh, heard that after last week's message in some, uh, several of the Bible study class, there was a long discussion on why Jesus actually wanted to go and be alone. I think that's interesting because it's really hard for us. and we don't, It doesn't tell us exactly the reason why. We kind of speculate on some things. But it is easy for us. It, it makes a point that I think is important for us to realize. It's easy for us to see Jesus as God. That's, his divinity is not a problem for us. We've heard that our whole lives. But it is difficult for us to wrap our minds around his humanity. Jesus wasn't 50% man and 150% God. He was equally God and man, which is something only God himself can do. The book of Hebrews tells us that he hurts and was tempted in every way that we're tempted. Only the difference between us and Jesus is he never sinned. John's death seems to hurt Jesus like it would hurt us when someone we love, even if we know where they are in death, it hurt Jesus the same way that it hurts us when we, when we lose someone that we love. Um, we, we love clean boxes. And in our study right now, if you're visiting or haven't been with us the whole time, we're in week number 33, 
in the introduction to our study of the life of Jesus, what we're actually doing is we're taking all four Gospels and trying to harmonize them or put them in some sort of chronological order with the best we can do. And we are trying to discover Jesus of the Scriptures because I would argue that the Jesus of the Scriptures has been lost in all of our debates over our own felt needs and concerns. Uh, to many, Jesus is a social justice warrior if they happen to be a social justice warrior. To others, he's a religious movement or a moral movement or an ethical movement. Wherever we find ourselves in this life and what we find ourselves most passionate about, we have a tendency to take Jesus and make him that. And the truth is, he really did come just to save sinners. He came to fulfill his Father's will. And when we hijack the Jesus of the Bible for our own way, even a Baptist Jesus or a white Jesus or a black Jesus or a Mexican Jesus, when we hijack the Jesus of the Scriptures so that it enhances our own desires and passions for the world and the government and all those things, we actually reduce Jesus just to humanity. We actually endorse that he's just a man. And i got to tell you something, though. To be truthful... To be truthful, it takes a lot of discipline not to do that. Jesus Christ was not a Baptist. In fact, Jesus Christ was not even Christian. He was a Jewish guy, fully God, who came to solve the problem of Judaism, which was it didn't take sin away. There's a whole religion that is built around Jesus being an American. What's that religion? Mormonism. That's the foundational cornerstone of everything that they believe. Jesus Christ came to the Americas and proclaimed the gospel here, and he started the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's heretical. There's no historical evidence for that. The Bible doesn't teach that, so they make up new books. If I offended you as a Mormon, I hope you'll be offended enough to study for yourselves. And the same with a Baptist. I hope that as we go through this, or in Assemblies of God, I hope that, that, that some of the things that we talk about will push you to restudy the Scriptures. As I say all the time, my goal is not to get you to agree with me. My goal is to get you to agree with the Scriptures. And I hope as we study the Scriptures together, you get unsettled enough to prove me wrong. Prove it wrong. You see, we love clean boxes, and Jesus is not a box. Jesus is not a doctrinal statement. He's not a moral white paper or even a religious zealot. He's not the Pope. He's not even the leader of a religious movement. Jesus was and is, and our second to last song we just sang is, he's always is who he is. He's always the same. Scripture tells us that. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Scripture endorses that. Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh. And that makes him, now pay attention, think about what I'm, what I'm trying to mean here because we're limited with words. But Jesus, by his very nature, is uncontrollable. So if you have been reading a book that tells you how to enact God's hand of healing based upon your manipulation of him by faith or some sort of magical words, there's a lot of books about that, learning to pray, and those books aren't teaching you to pray, they're teaching you how to pray to get God to do what you want. There's a book that came out in the last couple of years that actually tells you what exactly to say in order to get your car fixed or in order to get healing from this disease or that. There are people who believe that if you say the exact words you need to say, God will have no choice but to heal you. No choice but to heal you. I just want to be clear here for a second. Everybody wants what they want. Everybody in this room, including this pastor. I want what I want. 
and I pray for what I want. But if at the end of my prayer, Jesus prayed for what he wanted before he was arrested. Not my will, though, yours be done. Take this cup from me. I, you, you don't have to agree, but I've always thought, as I keep studying the story of Jesus, when I get to the end, when he's in the garden, and he looks at those three. So he takes 11 in the garden, because Judas has already gone to turn him over. He takes him into the garden. They're sitting there, and Jesus says, I need to go by myself to pray. And, he, and, and, he, and he, they see him struggling, and he takes three of his best, closest disciples to come away with him, and he says, pray for me. I'm being greatly tempted. I'm struggling, and he's dripping uh, drops of blood, and those guys go to sleep on him. I think Jesus is going, I really don't want to die for these guys. Why? I can't even get them to stay up and pray, but not will yours be done. I think, I think though, that there's a, there's a percentage of you that goes, that's not why he was struggling, Pastor. That's okay, but the guy was human as well as God. And he wasn't just some, like I said, moralist. He's not just a teacher who's untouched by the people he's teaching. He's actually God in the flesh. And to some degree, that makes him unknowable. In other words, I, I, I know we're 33 weeks into discovering the God of the Scriptures. But he can't be known because he's not just a man. He's God. He, his teachings weren't things that he learned from his Hebrew studies as a child, a Jewish boy, and they weren't just things that his mom and daddy taught him. He can't be known like I can be known and you can be known. He's God. His authority from was, is from on high. And as we continue now to move towards Jerusalem, and we haven't quite taken that turn yet. It'll happen soon. But as we begin to take our turn towards Jerusalem, towards his crucifixion, and he begins really talking about it here, as we begin to take that turn, you're going to see just how unknowable he was by how the disciples react to him. The disciples spent day and night with him for three years. And they still, okay, today's text, Matthew 14, verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news of John's murder, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. That was last week's text. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed him on foot from many towns. Verse 14 in Matthew 14. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped out from the boat. And he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. More detail is given to us of what happened here from Mark chapter 6, verse 32. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. I want you to visualize this. They, they, they don't go across the sea this time. They traverse by the seashore. And what are the crowds doing? You want to know what the people wanted of Jesus? They're running along the seashore, children, adults, running along, watching the boat go. They want to follow him. That's how big his following had become. It's, uh, we'll continue, verse 33. But many people recognized him and saw him leaving and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So he didn't just heal them. He wasn't just concerned for their physical ailments. He was concerned for their souls. He was concerned that they had no shepherd. So he teaches them. Verse 35, this week's text. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came and said to him, This is a remote place. And it's, it's already getting late. 
send the crowds away so that they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. Now, you know where we're going, so just take a breath and don't get ahead of me here. That is a reasonable thing for his council to do. They're going to get tired. It's going to get dark. We're out here in the middle. Remember why they're in a remote place? Because they went ahead to where he was going because he wanted to be alone with his father and his disciples to mourn his cousin after his murder. So the disciples come to him as his team, as his special 12, as anybody would do, and they are concerned for the crowd, and I think that they should be patted on the back for that. Send them to farms and villages before it gets too dark, and they can eat. And in classic Jesus form, verse 37, Jesus said, you feed them. <laughs> now, you and I are at a disadvantage because we can't look at the crowd, but you're going to find out in a minute that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. If we put the math together and each family only had one child there, and that's a very conservative number, you're looking at near 20,000 people. 20,000 people. Master, the crowd is huge and it's getting dark and it's going to get dangerous here, and we're in this remote area. You need to send them away to go get food. They're going to be hungry. Kids are going to be crying. You feed them. <laughs> Is that God or what? I told you, he's unknowable. They must have looked at him like, well, actually it tells us what they said, verse 37. With what they asked, man, we'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Now, I, again, I know this is the Bible, and I know you've heard this story from childhood, but you've got to read the story like it's told. This is a real story. This isn't a Sunday school lesson. This is real. So they say to Jesus, you need to send these people away. They need food. Jesus says, you feed them. Duh. <laughs> of course. Of course, we're going to feed 20,000 people. Remember, this is the same group of people that just a few weeks ago were asking the Lord where they're going to eat and sleep. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you was his answer. Classic God answer. Don't you get frustrated with that answer sometimes? It's okay to say yes because if they got frustrated and they could hear his voice, so do we. I mean, you feed him. As... That's not great leadership development training. That's, it's not. That's not the answer. You want to build up your team, not tear them down. And their response is so great. I mean, it's just so human. With, Excuse me? With what? I mean... We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for these people, silly little men. They think they can reason with Jesus, kind of like me. I'm constantly telling people, though I know what he's capable of, I'm constantly telling God what he needs to do, the most reasonable plan. That from point A to point C is always through point B, unless you're dealing with God. He seems to take the long route all the time. You want to know what's really going on here? This is why not just reading one gospel at a time is great. This is the cool thing. John 6 tells us what's really going on. There's a chess game that if you don't read John's recording of this, you don't understand. Then Jesus climbed a hill, John 6, verse 3. Then Jesus climbed a hill and he sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Oh, now we know a little bit more. That's why there were so many people coming to Jesus because it was only a, a small journey from Jerusalem and it was told us that during the Passover celebration, the city of Jerusalem would swell from a few tens of thousands of people to potentially one to two million people. So that's why there was a mass of people there. And they come out to hear this Jesus, this Messiah-type character. It tells us that as soon as the huge crowd of people came to look for him, turning to Philip, he asked, Yo, Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Oh, there's a new nuance. 
So they come to Jesus and say, hey, it's getting dark. You need to send these people away. And in the middle of the conversation, there's a conversation with Philip. He looks at Philip and says, Phil, Phil, we got a problem. Where do you think we can get bread to feed all these people? Where can we buy it? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. <laughs> God, I was just diagnosed with cancer. I could use a healing. I need the right doctor, Father, the right pill. This wasn't really about finding food after all. No matter how much great teaching you've heard on Jesus having compassion for the hungry, that's not really what this was about. You see, this famous story actually was about discipling the disciples. I know that in Southern Baptist circles, or I, I can actually expand that and into the Bible Belt, I know that we actually think that the whole purpose of the church is actually to reach the lost. And while that is a very important commission of the church, discipling of the church is equally important according to the New Testament. And the purpose for which we gather, did you know that? The reason we gather on Sunday mornings is not to reach the lost, but to disciple the disciples, to remind you who God is, to teach you to trust him even when he's untrustable. Yes, I use that word. Because it seems like every day God asks us to do the ridiculous, like feed 20,000 people with nothing. Philip replied, verse 7, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed him. Oh, he's the one who said that. Verse 8, then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, in one of the few references we had to him ever speaking. How'd you like this to be your, your eternal record? Simon Peter's brother spoke up, hey, there's a young boy with five barley loaves and two fish over there, but what good is that, I guess? You ever done that? I mean, they're, they're having this conversation, and the 12 are all around Jesus, and, and they bring a concern to him. We've got a problem. We've got all these people. It's getting dark. They're going to be hungry. There's children and everything, and we need to help them solve this problem. And Jesus said, you feed them. And Philip looks at him, and everybody's kind of staring at him after he says that, and he looks at Philip, and he says, hey, where can we buy food for these people? Why does he ask that question? Not because Jesus is introspective or Jesus is curious or find, wants a geographic conversation, but because he's going to disciple the disciples. I'm going to show you something. But before I do, I have, to, I have to point out that you need to be shown something. So Philip responds, it would take us months to find enough money, to, to earn enough money to feed all these people. Months, which is pretty impressive. If they can raise enough money in a few months to actually feed 20,000 people, that's pretty impressive. What's, what's interesting, though, is that Andrew, who's been looking for a way to break into the leadership of these 12, he's been just waiting on, with bated breath to say something smart. He speaks up. Hey, I just met a young boy with a few loaves of bread and some fish. They, never mind. Verse 10. Immediately following this conversation, after Andrew says something silly, Jesus says, hey, tell everybody to sit down. So they all sat down on grassy slopes. The men alone, alone numbered about 5,000. That's where we get the math. Then Jesus took the loaves that Andrew brought to him. I guess Andrew isn't a big fool after all. Now he's feeling good about himself. He takes the loaves and he gives thanks to God. Father, thank you for this food. In my name, amen. And distributed them to the people. When he was done with the bread, he did the same with the fish. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking? Now, now, to be clear, when this miracle, and you already know the miracle, takes place, there's not lightning. 
There's no clouds that come over. The earth doesn't open up. And all of a sudden, the bread doesn't start mass producing. He just breaks the bread. I mean, he's sitting here. He's got a few loaves, and he has them bring baskets up, and he breaks it, and he puts it in, and he just keeps putting it in. Just keeps adding. Then he says, go hand it out. What are the disciples thinking? This is the dumbest thing we've ever done. There's certainly not enough bread. And as they pass it out and they go person to person, <laughs> there's enough bread. And then it says they come back, and he does the same with the fish, which had to make his fingers stink. I, I, worry, I don't know why I worry about that. One of the reasons I don't eat oranges is because of that. But I'm, I'm not a Jew, and I like hamburger. I'm not a huge fish fan, so if you ever want to buy me dinner, don't buy me fish. But they, he rips the fish up, and the same thing happens. Andrew has to be going, me and my big mouth, except that it says, and they ate as much as they wanted. <laughs> every child, every man, every woman ate as much as they wanted. And I want to remind you that this wasn't about feeding the crowd. It was about discipling the disciples. And that being the case, Jesus isn't done. He's about to put an exclamation point on the lesson. Because after they're done passing out the food and the disciples aren't talking at all, except Andrew, who's got a lot to say now. That was a pretty good idea, that, uh, that uh, kid's lunchbox, wasn't it? Peter. Peter rolls his eyes. John tells him that rolling his eyes offends him. The sons of thunder start fighting among themselves. Somebody else wants to talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom, that there's going to be plenty of bread there. <laughs> just, I, I made all that up, just so you know. After everyone was full, verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, now I want you to gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. Now Jesus is an economist. He, what is it? Uh, he cares about food, make sure food isn't wasted. Forget it. I'm trying to think of something smart. I'm not doing very well. Doggy bag. We'll call it doggy bag. So Jesus, he, of course, Jesus is very deeply concerned that nothing's wasted, so he has them collect it, and that's not why he had them collected. In the same way that he wasn't concerned about the people being fed primarily, he wasn't concerned about food being wasted. He was discipling the disciples. So they, being the disciples, picked up the pieces. They go through the crowd, and they gather all the stuff, the leftovers, and they put it in a basket. And it filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. <laughs> now, you may be an accountant like my daughter, or you may just be good at math, but how do you get five small barley loaves a boy's lunch or dinner and end up with 12 full baskets of scraps? The disciples had to be thinking to themselves as they bring it all to the master who is now putting it in those little bags you get that says, thank you very much. They had to be thinking, this, not, this is not possible. To which Jesus, who can read their minds, is thinking to himself, I know, isn't that cool? I never do the possible. I always do the impossible. Now pay attention here. Back to the crowd. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they said, surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. The crowd does what we all do. He can feed me. We watched him heal people. He is so good for my life. He's the one we've been praying for. Because like us, they pray for their own desires to be done, not God's will. That's their primary concern. What am I going to eat? What is going to keep me alive? When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, and the word force there is very significant, force him, take him by force, kidnap him, wrap him up and say, you're our king whether you like it or not, he slipped away into the hills by himself. 
Now, I hope that you're thinking critically and at this point, and I hope you're, you're asking questions that you never may have asked before we start our study 33 weeks ago. But if you are, you must be thinking, isn't that what Jesus wanted? Wasn't his goal to set up a kingdom? I mean, didn't he need followers? I mean, a religious uprising. Why, why feed the people if you don't want them to want you? The truth is, to have people demand that he be what they want him to be? No, that's not why he came. You see, in this upside-down kingdom, as, as we've been stolen that phrase from the Bible Project people, and Jesus seek pe- seeks people who will love him and trust him to take care of their greatest need, even if they do not understand how he'll do it, or even if he'll do it their way, but simply believe that he's the sent one from God, and in that will trust him. Not people who will make him their king because he solves all their problems. That's not why. And I think the church needs to understand that because the church today is in mid-process, and maybe it's always been like that, of recreating a Jesus that meets all your needs. We're going to demand that Jesus be okay with people of same-sex attraction, or we're going to demand that Jesus be a Republican, or we're going to demand that Jesus be black, or we're going to demand that Jesus be white, or we're going to demand that Jesus be a moralist. None of those things are true. I have no idea what color Jesus is. But I assure you, based upon the scripture, that Jesus was not a social justice warrior. Did he care for the poor? Yeah, and the rich. Did he care for the irreligious? And the religious. For every time you hear a message about an unreached group or a mistreated group, I can assure you there are equal amount of stories. And I give you the case in point of a few weeks ago. I'm going to come over here and turn this off. A few weeks ago, maybe I'm going to turn this off. I'm going to turn it backwards. I don't know if you can hear it. It's whining. Um, But a few weeks ago, there was a story, you know, and we know the story about the woman with the issue of blood, the poor woman, who comes to Jesus and grabs his cloak and is healed. And we teach that in and of itself, but the story is encompassed in a bigger story where Jesus is actually going to raise the dead daughter of a religious leader who is extremely wealthy. But what we've done, and this is why we're doing this study, is we've picked and chosen parts of the story that make us feel good about our own fleshly battles. And that's exactly what these people are doing here. They are not asking him to be their king. They're forcing him to be their king. Had they asked him to be their king, he would have said, okay, but you're going to have to do it my way in my upside-down kingdom. He would have re-preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's the meek who inherit the earth. It's the humble who will inherit all things. It's the servant who's actually a royal. That is Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is get what you can take and go on with your life. That's not at all what it is. That's flesh. Everybody wants that. And I, I, I warn you, and I give you a heads up in case it happens in our lifetime, but I'd like to warn you that the Antichrist is going to offer the world everything they want as long as they don't bow the knee to Jesus. You can be a part of their economic socialism. You can be a part of their you know, healthcare system. That's what scripture tells us. If you believe in a literal tribulation period, that's what that looks like. Satan is going to counter to us everything that God offers eternally, but maybe not the way that feeds our flesh in the moment. It actually tells us in Revelation that if the Lord hadn't returned in time, even the church would have been deceived. And I argue that the apostate period of the church is upon us. 
When we can no longer call sin, sin, and call people to repentance for fear of offending people, we're no longer effective with the gospel. You see, the gospel, which means good news, is good news. That means there has to be bad news, and we're afraid of talking about the bad news. The bad news is every man, woman, and child ever conceived by human parents is innately under the condemnation of God because they're born with a sin nature, and God sent Jesus to solve that problem. That's why Jesus came. That's the only reason he came, and then to disciple us so that we can tell others that. So these people, like many today, see Jesus as a way to have all of their own dreams come true. It's like having your own little personal Santa Claus or your grandfather who always gives you what you want. Not my grandkids starting in March, but Jesus was and is the sovereign God. His miracles and his message pointed to that. People should have bowed instead of demanded. I, I, know, I know it's easy to sit here and read this and go, well, I would have done the same thing. I would have wanted to make him my leader. You don't understand. That Greek word force there means make him do what they wanted. Just, just to be clear, the response to God when you see him face to face isn't demanding that he do what you want. It's this. I'll do whatever you want. Why would you save a wretch like me? How could you take time for me? That's the response. That's the biblical, humble response. It is arrogant to say, he feeds, he heals, you be our king. They forced him to be king. And while it looks on paper like, well, that's a reasonable response, it's completely inappropriate. That's like you feeding your kid and taking them to the doctor and them demanding that you let them live in your house for the rest of their life. The reason we do those things is for the purpose of raising them up. Back to our story. So in the same way that Jesus, religious leaders wanted to kill him, religious leaders wanted to kill him before it was his time for him to die, Jesus slips away because he did not come to do their will. He came to do his father's will. You do remember that, right? John 6, 38, it actually says it. Very clear. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. That's pretty significant. Leave it up there for a second, Kevin. That's very significant because Jesus, the man, had his own will. He could, in fact, when Peter, we'll get at this later, Peter makes some suggestions about some things. The crowd is leaving. Don't you concern? He rebukes him for saying things. You're discouraging the flock. And Jesus looks at Peter and harshly rebukes him. Get behind me, Get behind me Satan. Why? Because he's tempted. What Peter is saying affects him. Jesus didn't like crowds leaving. Nobody does. You want a big crowd. You want it to be hailed. He's a man. He's never sinned, but he's a man. And when these temptations come, he has to rebuke them. He has to move them away because he came to do his father's will, not his own will. There will be a day, church, that he will ride a white horse. There will be a day where he takes the throne of David. There will be a, a day when everybody who ever lived will bow the knee, according to Philippians. There will be a day, just not today. And in this upside-down kingdom, where your flesh is constantly telling you to live for right now and get it done today and make sure you solve the problem before you go to bed, in this kingdom, God says, trust me, I'll take care of it later. I don't want you to take care of it later. I want to be healed today. I know, sweetheart. Trust me, I'll take care of it later. Well, what do you want me to do? Go to the doctor. Why don't you go to work? I hate my boss. Go to work anyway. Your boss needs me. I don't really want to spend eternity with them, Father. 
you, I, I hope I'm convincing you of how backwards the church has gotten today. To take pulpit time and teach you how to be a better parent is making you a better parent. It's not making people closer to Jesus. Just to be clear, a good parent without Jesus still goes to hell and takes their kids with them. This is all about Jesus. better to have a blown-up family that's completely on their face before God and redeemed and spend the next million years with God than without. And the church has lost that. When this community went from moist to dry, or wet, with alcohol, it was not a dry community. <clears throat> when I moved here, it was a dry community, and I could buy a beer, which I don't like. I am that Baptist. I could have bought it at Applebee's with a $2 membership to their club, so it wasn't drinking, it was clubbing. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't understand it. I'm not a Southerner, but I'm learning. But, but the, the, the fact is, and, and, and you giggle because it's, it's true, it wasn't dry, it was moist. And I remember a pastor writing in a newspaper here, this is what they wrote after the alcohol was allowed in our community for the, not the first time, but it became what? Great. Now the church that's already busy trying to help people is going to have to deal with alcoholism too. To which I thought, we should give beer away on Sunday morning. If people will destroy their lives and come to us so that they can meet Jesus, maybe that's the most effective evangelism team we could. Let's help them destroy their lives. What are we protecting them from? Their need for Jesus? If we were really the ant, off message. I guess a question I ask myself this week, and I need to ask you is, church, will you bow the knee to King Jesus knowing his ways are best? Or will we too demand that, we, that he bow the knee to us? It's, it's not a question of whether or not we believe he's God. That's, I think that's resolved for most of us in this room. The question is, will we let him be God or will we ask him to let us be God in his place? That's what they wanted. Matthew 10, 38 through 39 had already been taught to these people. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. Give up your life. What does that mean, Pastor Mark? It means the priority of your life is not to get rich or have a bigger house or to be healthy. The priority of your life is to bow the knee to God, whatever he asks, including feeding 20,000 people with a bag lunch. Well, that's ridiculous. I know. He's unknowable. Precious family, this is an upside-down life we've been asked to lead. It's upside down. It's going, to go against, it's going to go against what your gut tells you. Julie and I were reading uh, this morning of a church's mission statement, and they talked about their product. And when did we decide that the world does business better than the church? We're not a business, we're a family. God help us. We don't become better because we're bigger. Don't stop giving. We, we want the money. But we're not a business. And the truth is, we shouldn't do one more thing in ministry than you give us money and staff to do. Actually, you shouldn't need staff. You should do it yourselves. This is what it is. It's an upside-down kingdom. And, and we all want to be well, and we all want food, and we all want to have more money in our bank than we have right now. But the truth is, even if we don't have any money in our bank, God is still on the throne and we can still trust him. 
He's okay. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be scary. Actually, um, this day wasn't over. Some of you are probably aware what comes next, but it's not over. Because this wasn't about feeding a lot of hungry people. This was about discipling the disciplers. Matthew 14, verse 20 says, They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to the women and children. Immediately after this, verse 22, and whenever you see that, I hope you're beginning to learn that whenever you see that phrase, you should probably read the next story because they're connected, right? Jesus insisted, that's English for I'm in charge, quit arguing with me, take your 12 baskets of food and do this. He insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sitting them home, he went up to, into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. I believe Jesus is still hurting over his cousin's death. I want to remind you that John the Baptist wasn't just a great preacher and a good man. You could make the case that John was Jesus' rabbi. He was the one who baptized him. I hope that I hold a special place in your heart when God calls me home. Jesus loved this guy. And he's dead. So he goes to be alone. But I would argue that he didn't go to be alone and send the disciples to the sea for that reason. Verse 24 tells us that meanwhile, meanwhile, while Jesus is alone up on the mountain talking to his father, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. For a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting the heavy waves. John's gospel tells us that they're about three and a half miles out. It was about three o'clock in the morning. Jesus came toward them, walking on water. Here we go again. When the disciples saw him walking on water, they were terrified. There's that word again. In case you have made this observation or haven't made it, Jesus is the one who sent them by themselves into the storm. I'd like to speak to those of you listening on the internet who are reading books right now that tells you Jesus will never, ever ask you to do difficult things or that he would never allow you even to be hurt or he would never terrify you. You're being lied to. Jesus sent them alone into the boat, into the Sea of Galilee, knowing exactly what was fixing to happen three and a half miles out. So he makes his way out to them, and they're terrified. In fear, they cried out, it's a ghost, because it was October 31st. <laughs> but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. No, no, look at this. They're freaking out. Twelve men. Not just men, men's men. Like fishermen men, many of them. It's a ghost! Even Andrew was screaming at this point. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's okay, boys. Take courage, it is I. That's very English of us. Don't worry, guys. It's me. I got this. And Peter, not to be outdone by his brother Andrew, says, watch this. Hey, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking out on the water. <laughs> To which Jesus says, come on. He was Southern. Is this a great story? At this point, Peter realizes he has overspoken in a way that Andrew could never dream of overspeaking. 
and he goes over the side of the boat and he walks on water towards Jesus. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's already calmed the storm. If they're afraid, why doesn't he just calm the storm? Why didn't he just say, peace be still again? Say the exact same words. You already did it once. Because that wasn't the goal. The goal was to teach Peter and the disciples a lesson that they would never, ever forget. And i got to give Peter props. He goes, man. Why does he go? Because at this point, what's he got to lose? That's right, Pam. What's he got to lose? And that might be God. Maybe that really is Jesus. And I saw him calm a storm. I think a bigger question, and I've asked this before here at Carpenter's Way, but I think a question that's not asked enough is, what were the other 11 thinking? I hope that as Andrew, I go, I'm not letting Peter out, do me. I'm going in too. You see, this story, and you know the end of the story, but I want us to take a different look at it. But I, I think the end of the story we often were taught in Sunday school is Jesus has a walk with Peter with his arm around him and says, where's your faith, buddy? So we think about Peter's lack of faith. I would like to argue, at least the dude got out of the boat. The other 11 are going, oh, go, go, Peter, we'll send money. <laughs> Pastor, this is what it looks like in modern terms. Pastor Mark, I have a cousin that's about to pass away and is at hospice. I don't think they know Jesus. Will you go tell them about Jesus? No, I won't. You're the missionary. Have a great day. I'll pray. Get out of the boat. I don't want to get out of the boat. You got to get out of the boat. You, you want to be, you, you want really in, you want to know that, pa- that peace that passes understanding that we talk about, that some talk about? You want to know what it's like to walk with Jesus? You want to really experience the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Then get out of the boat. When Jesus says, feed them. You can say how. But when he tells you to take a little kid's basket of bread and fish, take it. Well, pastor, how do, how do I know he's saying that? You'll find out after. <laughs> I don't know. I've never had an audible voice from God. But I sure have looked back and seen him working. And I, I know that there are people who hear from God. I, I have visions, especially now, all over the world, in, in Middle Eastern countries, people are seeing and talking with God in ways that I can't even imagine. And I have seen the miraculous. I've seen it here at Carpenter's Way. The elders have laid hands on people and anointed people with oil, and their cancer disappears. I've seen that. But I must tell you that most of the time, when I'm looking at a hungry crowd, and I tell them, how are we going to feed these people? And God says, here's a couple pieces of bread. I balk at that. Maybe I should just try cutting it up. I want to be clear that while I am conservative in my doctrine, I believe God is a God of miracles even today. He does the supernatural. He just doesn't do it the way I demand it, ever. It would be nice had he done that once in a while because I think I have some pretty good ideas. (laughs) I have, after all, been pastoring 33 years. I can add something to the kingdom. That was not nice. I don't know who did that. But you're right. How arrogant are we? How about when your kids are blowing up your household? When was the last time you grabbed their hands before you beat them to death and you prayed with them? Before I beat them to death, God, you better send an angel. I I don't know. When was the last time you lost your job and the first thing you did was got on your knees, even in the midst of panic? Get out of the boat. It's okay to drown. You can drown with Jesus. You can drown without Jesus. If you drown, it's his plan. But you might as well drown with Jesus. I'm not making silly of this. This really happened. And Peter really got out of the boat, and the other 11 are going, you go, Peter, we, you could be our missionary to Jesus. Go. We'll even let you speak on a Wednesday night sometime and tell us about your experience of walking on water. Get out of the dang boat. 
That's the problem with the church today. We're too busy building bigger boats. Get out of the boat. Dang is an okay word. It's in the Greek. It's dang oi. It means oh, bummer. (laughs) So Peter went over the side of the boat. I love that phrase. And he walks on water towards Jesus. Take this, Andrew. Take this, Andrew. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified. There's that word again. And he began to sink. Um, just to be clear, just because Jesus shows up and is doing something in your midst does not mean you're not afraid. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And in classic Yeshua mojo, he reaches out and he grabs him. You have such little faith. Why'd you doubt me? To which Peter thought to himself, I was drowning, this is not a time for a lesson. When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. And you want to know what the heart of the other 11 are? Then the disciples worshipped him. That doesn't mean they started singing holy, holy, holy. It means they stood in awe. They were talking among themselves, what just happened? (laughs) And they said to him, you really are God's son. To which Jesus responded in the most divine way possible, duh. Have you not seen me cast out demons? Have I not told you that? Have I not raised the dead? Have I not turned water to wine? Have I not calmed a storm in your midst? Have I not just fed 5,000 plus women and children with a few loaves of bread? Have I not told people what they were thinking before they said it? Have I not rebuked you for things you were thinking before you said it? At which time they all went to the back of the boat and went, you really shouldn't talk so much. (laughs) They said that, you guys, because they were not clear on who Jesus was just yet. Just like us. Just like us. I mean, soon Jesus is going to send them out on their own once again, but this time it won't be for a few hours. This time it will be for the rest of their lives until they go home. He will die, and their response will be the same. They'll be terrified, and they'll go into the upper room, and they will lock the door because they believe that Rome is coming for them next, that they will be the next to be hung on crosses, and they're in the upper room, and they're afraid, and Jesus will walk right through the door, tell them, don't be afraid, peace, brothers. Then he's going to feed them on the shoreline, and over the next 40 days, he's going to disciple them and teach them, and then he's going to leave them. And he's going to say some archaic thing about a spirit coming, and he has to leave, and they're not going to understand what he's talking about until the day of Pentecost when they actually speak in tongues of languages that they don't even know, and thousands of people get saved. And even in all of that, they're still going to ask him, are you setting up your kingdom now? Now is the time. And he's going to say, none of your business. It really isn't any of your business. It's not for you to know. It's not, your, it's not your concern. What is my concern? If I may quote a good friend, Pastor Larry Brevard, who plays the keyboards in the back, their job, was to put their eyes on the back of the head of their rabbi and not look away, ever. Our job is to put our eyes on the back of of the Messiah's head and follow, even if he leads us into drowning, deep, stormy waters. Because he will. I am so sorry that you have been lied to. This is not a safe life. The next one is. This will be terrifying. And he will send you into deep water. He will. 
and you get to choose to follow or not. Better to drown with him than without him. They would need to know the lessons of this day to accomplish the task that he would have for them tomorrow. And so it is with us, my cross-carrying co-laborers. Isaiah 43, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, am your Savior. We're seeing from the Scriptures Jesus take care of people in ways that no one would, could have possibly anticipated. We learn from these moments in our study of what He's capable of, not what He will necessarily do for us. What we have to learn is to trust him because of what he's capable of. To put our eyes on the back of his head and walk into heaven with him. Even when our boat is filling with water, our shelves are empty, and we cannot see Jesus, he will show up at exactly the right moment, and when he does, you still won't think he's capable. Because that's what the disciples did. He will send us into harm's way to show us that even when he's not physically uh, present, he's aware of of us and our needs, and he's in charge, we should learn to trust him. We have to learn the lessons of today in order to accomplish the tasks he has for us tomorrow. Because you, my brothers and sisters, are in fact the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. You are being and have been retooled for kingdom work. And the truth is, he's preparing you for that. Are you resisting? I know I am, and I don't want to anymore. So here's your application. Do not find deep water with a bad storm and try to step out of the boat. Just tell him you're willing to follow. Maybe instead of figuring out how we fix ourselves, we go to Jesus and ask him to fix us. Maybe that's a better approach. We've been trying to fix ourselves in this country for 270 years in the church. I've got news for you. It ain't working. Maybe we should go to him and ask him to change us from the inside out, which he's promised to do. In the meantime, courage, my friends. I know that there are about a dozen of you watching online this morning that are dealing with cancer or infections or the potential death of a father or you're sick or you're scared. Those are very human emotions. Those are very normal responses. Welcome to the upside-down kingdom. Your oncologist needs Jesus. The nurses need Jesus. Maybe you need rest and to trust him. He's still on the throne. He's still good. And soon we'll all be home. Until then, pick up your cross, put your selfish ambitions aside, and follow him. He is in process of discipling you, his disciples. Let's close in prayer. Before I wrap us up, I, I want to just give you an opportunity to take that thing that you're holding on to very tightly like the side of the boat and give it to Jesus. Your nails are dug into that thing because you're afraid of letting go. Jesus says to you, come to me. Easier said than done. So I want to be quiet for a second and I want you to see yourself kneeling before Jesus right now and I want you to set it at his feet.
Father, give us courage. Not courage in our flesh, but courage in you. Knowing what you're capable of. Not knowing what you'll do. Help us learn to trust you. And if there's somebody here this morning or watching online who has never given their life to you, may today be the day of their adoption, of forgiveness, of salvation. May they cry out to you and just acknowledge they're a sinner and you're the only one who can save them from that. Realizing that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, may they bow the knee to you and give, them control, give you control of their life today. Take all these things we have just looked at and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to ask you a favor uh, with the lights off. I'll just uh, I'll find a light. Next Sunday morning, we're going to have a pretty special time. Oh, they're back. Uh, we are going to have a gentleman that Robert, Jared, Pig, and myself just met about a month and a half ago. He was an orphan in Uganda when he met Jesus. And uh, he ministers there now to orphans as well as he has 650 pastors that he's trying to disciple, most of which don't even have a Bible. But he is here in the States telling his story. And uh, they're inviting people to participate with them in ministry. But when we heard his story and, and met those who have ministered with him, we really felt like you needed to hear his story. So next Sunday morning is going to be pretty cool, normal service time. But you're going to hear from a, a, a guy by the name of Paul a pastor in Uganda who met Jesus. Uh, it's, it's an incredible story. So that'll be next Sunday. Please try to be here, and uh, you'll want to be a part of that. It's going to be pretty cool. So uh, just to give you a heads up on that, I love you. Enjoy the fall weather. It turns into summer again tomorrow. If you don't have a Bible study class uh, uh, and you would like to find one, there's a table out there. Somebody will be there to direct you to one, or I'll be up here to talk with you after. I love you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.